Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So today, uh, as I understand it, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is version control. Yep. Want to get her done? Oh, I was going to make the joke. Let's get started. <laughs> we're talking about get. Uh, oh, boy. You're listening to Linear Digressions. So Git is version control software that uh, I use. Well, actually, that's a lie. I use Mercurial, but it's basically the same thing, just a different implementation. Um, most software engineers will use version control to track the changes that they make uh, to their software. And by looking at those, in, by separating those individual changes and tracking them separately, it allows you to do things like if you introduce a bug, you can go and figure out what commit introduced the bug and roll back only those changes and other kinds of more advanced uh, things like that. But yeah. as I understand it, it's it's useful in data science as well. Yeah, that, that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up at some point. So it's interesting. Sometimes I go and give, uh, I'll be at conferences, I'll go and give talks, I'll be talking to data scientists about their work and Something that a number of them have said to me more than more than I uh, expect sometimes is kind of like, yeah, GitHub, Git and GitHub are not exactly the same thing, but usually we're talking about GitHub. Uh, they say, yeah, GitHub, I really need to figure out how to get that going. I know I should be using it, but like, I don't know, it seems kind of a, it's kind of scary and seems hard to learn and I don't know I just like haven't done it yet yeah. and so I wanted to spend a little bit of time not making you all completely proficient in Git but my guess is that there are a few people who are listening to this right now who who hear a little bit of their own inner monologue in that description and yeah. maybe get you off the couch a little bit give you the encouragement that you need to get started with uh, version controlling your data science code. I do have to say uh, one thing first which is that if you do feel overwhelmed by learning version control, by learning Git or learning how to use GitHub. Um, it's not just you. There are a couple of concepts that are not necessarily intuitive that once you understand them, then everything starts, starts making a little bit more sense, right? But I do remember that when I was first learning to, to code and I was first actually doing real development, uh, I knew I was supposed to learn this version control thing. I knew that everyone used it. Um, I knew that it was a really good thing to know, but it was a really hard thing to start to, to get started on, right? That that was really the the hard part was getting getting started and getting those first couple of concepts um, cemented. And at the end, um, I, I know at least that there is a Udacity course that some friends of mine worked on that teaches this pretty well. Get and GitHub, if you want to dig in a little deeper than this cursory introduction gives you. Yep. So for those of you who haven't worked a lot with version control software, then you gave kind of a good introduction to it, but I'll just give my own, my own version here. Uh, so the idea is that software, you don't build all at one time. You kind of build it layer upon layer and you want to be keeping track of all the changes that happen between all of those layers. And sometimes those layers um, can have pretty complex structure and that can be because there's a number of different people who are working on a team together and they need to layer in their changes. It can be because sometimes when you're working with software, there might be several different versions of the software that you're working on all at the same time. 
A good example might be that there's a version of the software that's in production. Like, let's say you have a website. Uh, that's a bunch of code that could be under version control. There's the version of the website that everyone sees when they go to the your URL, but maybe there's also a version of it that you have that's under construction. Say you're adding a new page um, and you want to be able to support both of those different versions of the code at the same time and keep things nice and orderly. Obviously, uh, something that you mentioned before is that when you're making changes to code that can introduce bugs and you want to be able to quickly identify where those bugs are coming from and very easily, like you said, roll them back, roll back your code changes so you can go back to the to the place where you were before that bug was introduced and, um, and make repairs. So all of these are motivations for using uh, a version control system that keeps track of the layers of your code. And so Git is a version control system. It's not the same as GitHub, which is a website that offers services around Git. It's kind of like Git as a service. Um, but if you use Git, it's there's a decent chance you use GitHub as the um, the actual tool that you use. Um, but it's agnostic to any particular uh, language. So you can write Python code and put it in Git. You can write C++ code. You can write JavaScript code. So this isn't particular to any particular kind of software. If you're writing software, it can go into Git. So that kind of raises the question, what about data? Oh, now that's a really interesting question. And that was one of the last things I was going to touch on. But since you bring it up, uh, there be dragons. So, oh, okay. yeah, so Git was kind of implemented with code as the, as the original founding conception of the, of the entire system. And one of the things that makes code different from data is code tends to be a lot smaller than data sometimes is. And that's not to say yeah. that there aren't gigantic, uh, bodies of code out there. So in Gitland, you would call a body of code a, a repository or a repo. Uh, there's big repos out there, don't get me wrong. But the biggest data sets can be, uh, well, not even the biggest data sets, moderately sized data sets can be hundreds of gigabytes uh, Ooh, or yeah. even terabytes. But you never see code repos, basically, that are ever that big. Um, and so that's a little, that's a long-winded way of saying that, you know, Git is designed for the software world, not for the data world. Um, and so if you start checking data files into a Git repo alongside your software files, then um, up to a point, you can kind of get away with it. But there's usually in the long run, that's not the way that you want to be uh, version controlling your data. You want to have a special, um, like a data management system for keeping track of data versions. Can I tell you a funny story about uh, a different <laughs> version control system? Um, I, I so would like to know, yeah. <laughs> when I was at CERN as a graduate student, uh, CERN was on Subversion at the time, or SVN. Uh, this was a while back. And even then, it was like a little bit, you know, it was a little bit old even then. But um, all of CERN's big central repos were in the same Subversion system. And like CERN, an all-in-one repo? No, it wasn't all-in-one repo, but it was all sort of in one account, basically. I don't exactly like a know. Or, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. On a technical level, I don't know how it was set up, but the idea was they were all kind of... It wasn't like each individual group had their own system. Like, it, all, the, all the CERN code was, you know, talking to each other. Um, anyway, 
And um, so at CERN, obviously, we would use really big data files on a pretty regular basis. And there was some, I assume, you know, some poor graduate student or something who didn't know that it could be troublesome to put data into SVN. And, and I don't blame that student. I actually kind of blame the admins of the SVN system. But anyway, somebody checked in like some data file that was whatever, a few, a few gigs or a few tens of gigs. And they brought down basically all of Subversion for CERN for like a oh. month. <laughs> oh my God. And they had to, like, it was, <laughs> it, they got it back up in a couple of days as read only. But if you wanted to write code to the CERN Subversion, you couldn't do that yeah. for like five weeks or something. They had to blow the whole thing away and like migrate it all over to a new deployment. It was just like the biggest yeah. mess. So anyway, that's the worst case I've ever seen Oof. of uh, yeah. don't I mean, put your data in subversion control. The, the whole idea, I guess, of version control is that even if you, like, let's say you put some data into version control and then you, you commit that and then you immediately take it back out, that, that data is still in the version control system. Even though you've removed it from the code base, that data is there in the change of you adding it and then subsequently removing it, right? So adding 100 gigs and then saying, oops, committing and removing it is not going to make your <laughs> repo smaller again and so probably you know what they had to do is create a new repo and migrate from a previous state of the old one or, or something like that and i mean the implementation implementation details of different version control systems are different so it might be easier to do with one versus the other but your point remains like yeah d- d- huge files do not generally belong in version control I do know that there are some companies, if I'm remembering right, I, I read an article that was talking about how um, Google stores much larger files in their version control system than companies typically do. Interesting. And the reason is, I, I mean, what allows them to do it is that they, they have their own kind of homespun setup. And I don't work at Google. I don't know any of the details. But the point is, Typically, unless you have a dedicated team that works to allow your repo to support large files, it just isn't a good match. Sure. Yeah. So that is one of the things that makes Git not awesome if you're a data scientist. Uh, It's a good way of keeping track of your code. But if you're a data scientist, then the data that your code is deployed on is just as important as the code itself. And so that's one thing that's not ideal about it from a data science perspective, but it's still pretty darn useful. Uh, And so hence the, you know, the interest in, in being able to work with Git if you're a data scientist. And obviously there's also uh, potentially a lot of code that you might work with that isn't machine learning code. So what's the idea of Git? Uh, Take a step back here for a moment. So Git in particular has an implementation that's based on uh, an underlying structure that's a directed acyclic graph. And so what that means is that each version of the code that you, there's something that's called a commit, and that's kind of a, you know, stamp, like... If you imagine, like, it's a change that you uh, apply conceptually. Yeah. Uh, Another way to think of it is it's a snapshot of the code at that point in time. Um, So when you hit the commit button, either literally or metaphorically, it takes a snapshot of the code at that point in time, and then it puts another... uh, node in that directed acyclic graph. Um, 
and it's a node that has a parent, which was the last commit that happened, um, and that could have a child if there's another commit that you make at some point in the future. Um, and so when you're making all of these different versions of the code, all the different layers, what you're doing is adding more nodes into that graph. And in particular, the graph isn't necessarily, it can just be linear through time, like beads on a string is what your graph would look like if you were to visualize it. But the thing that's interesting about this structure is it allows for much more uh, complex types of structures. So you can have branches, most notably, where uh, you split out your graph. But anyway, the thing that I, the thing that this illuminates about the comment that you just made, like, why doesn't it make your repo smaller when you, when you delete a data file that you accidentally checked in or whatever, is it's because you check in the data file. And so that adds a node when you commit it, uh, that adds a node that now all of a sudden the graph is really big because it's got this data file in it. And then you're like, oh no, I need to take that out. And instead of, so you take it out and then you do another commit. So now the, the data is removed, but that doesn't remove it from the previous node. What you've done is just added on a new node that doesn't have the data in it anymore. And so that's why that doesn't blow it away is because in general, changing around the history of that graph, like going back and changing what the structure of the graph is or what's in a given commit is pretty hard. And it's not usually something that's where you can start to make trouble for yourself. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with Git, and that didn't make any sense, you know, why you couldn't just do takes these backsies. Um, that's why it's because of that underlying structure of, a, of the directed acyclic graph. And I think that's also an important thing as you're trying to learn Git. This was a, a good point that you made earlier, how hard it is to learn. And that's because visualizing how this, how this graph is operating under the hood is, uh, not something that's super intuitive or obvious. Um, and it's kind of this complicated mental model that you have to have in your head of what's going on with your code. But then once you have that mental model, I find that to be really, really helpful for then understanding uh, some of the most important Git commands that you might use. Now, just to step back for one uh, for one second, the term directed acyclic graph sounds pretty scary <laughs> if you've never heard that term before. Uh, so if you're if you're thinking about getting into this world and, and learning Git or how to use GitHub, you don't necessarily need to know what that term means because I just I just heard it for the first time just now. Um, but conceptually, it just means you've got nodes or you've got changes uh, which are called commits and things typically flow in one direction. Yeah, there's no, there's no cycles in the, well, acyclic, that's what it means. There's no cycles in the graph. Right. So since you are pretty familiar with Git, Ben, and I've been talking for a while. Uh, <laughs> you want to talk about a few of the, a few of the commands that folks might hear about sure, yeah. once they're getting started. So a couple of the Git commands that you have, you have Git commit. This is something that you can use to make a commit. So you modify a file, you modify two or three files, and then you say Git commit dash m for message added added new crazy feature or something probably a better commit message than that but i'm making it up on the fly um 
So that's how you make a commit. And then you've also got all of these commands that pertain to branching. And so I guess an example of of branching is rather than just having one change, two change, three change, four change, like in a row like that, you can you can actually have these different, uh, I don't know, branches. You can have these different uh, paths where you are adding commands, uh, you are adding commits to these different branches. And kind of here's a good example of that. Let's say that you have your um, development branch. And this is where you would typically put any features that you know that you want to do. So some designer comes to you and says, hey, we want to implement this. Uh, and you say, okay, and you do it in the, in the development branch. You might go a little further and have individual feature branches, but I'm, I'm not going to go into that. Uh, so you have your development branch, you develop this new feature, that new feature, and then you think, you know what, I've got a little extra time. I really want to like refactor this entire section, or I want to redesign this entire thing, but I want to be able to do that work without disturbing all of the work I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Cause who knows, I might want to throw away this experimental feature later. And so you create a new branch, you take your, your, um, development branch and you make a new branch from it. And let's call that experimental redesign. And then you do all of these commits that do the experimental redesign. All in the meantime, you're continuing to fix bugs. You're continuing to add features in your development branch uh, while you have this crazy experimental thing kind of along the side. And then later on, you show the new experimental feature to people and they're like, yes, I like it. We're going to ship it. What you can actually do, and I'm not going to get into the details here, but kind of conceptually, you could take these two branches and you can you can merge them together. Uh, it's almost like you take wherever the wherever the development branch is, and then you take all of the changes that have been made in the experimental branch, and you take those commits and you you replay them on top of the new head of your development branch. And so basically, conceptually, you're redoing all of the changes that or Git is redoing all of the changes from the experimental branch in the development branch, and then making a commit out of it. So it's a really great way of kind of separating out the things that you need to do, either development and experimental or individual features or individual features and like high pry bug fixes, etc. Um, it's a it's a really neat way of keeping track of all of the different changes you make to a code base, not just on a per change basis, but in these in these larger, I guess, metaphorical buckets that we call branches. And one of the things that can be really nice about this from a data science perspective, I think that was that was a pretty good description of how you might use it in software engineering, but there's some pretty straightforward parallels to data science. So when you're a data scientist, very often it's not clear to you at the outset exactly what model you should be building. And there's potentially a lot of different options that you have and how you can build the model and what kinds of say what kinds of visualizations you have of the output, what kinds of attributes that model has. And so there might be something like, well, I have to get a model up and running because people need to start having the answers, but then I want to be able to iterate on it and I want to be able to run experiments and try new stuff. Um, and so that's a nice opportunity to be using branches to protect the main model so that your users are still you know, happily getting their predictions, but maybe you have an idea of a new data set that you want to merge in or a new type of, um, you know, feature engineering thing you want to do. Um, 
So stuff that's more experimental, or maybe you have something that's just kind of more vanilla development work, like, hey, I need to add in a new performance metric. Um, but again, I want to, to do so in a way that if I introduce any bugs, you know, I have a chance of catching them before everybody right. else gets subjected to it. So, yeah. um, you know, even if the whole idea of like production and features and stuff like that is a little foreign to you as a data scientist, um, most data scientists are pretty comfortable with the idea that you have to try a bunch of stuff before you find something that works. And that's something that Git can be pretty nice for. And then when you do find something that, that works, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, the dust settles and you say, well, I've, I, I tried out a bunch of different things today and here's how I want to take the, you know, the best of that and put it together. Uh, then that's when you merge it back together. Awesome. And, um, so I, I guess that's pretty much it. As I mentioned, there's a Udacity course that a couple friends of mine made when I was working at Udacity called How to Use Git and GitHub. Uh, as of the recording of the episode, it's a free course, so you should be able to take it for free. There's a lot of other free resources out there as well. So um, if it feels like a scary thing to you, don't don't actually like try to get over that intimidation piece because once you really kind of once you grok the important concepts it's actually not all that bad and it's extremely useful linear digressions is a creative commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like just tell them we said hi to find out more about this or any other episode of linear digressions go to lineardigressions.com And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.